The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We are starting a new series this morning called <clears throat> Imago Day, uh, where we are looking at what makes us us. And we're trying to think theologically about what makes us human. And we're using this series as a, as a means to, to tackle some pretty contentious topics. And, and the hope is that we will, as a church, grow in compassion towards those who particularly struggle in these sorts of situations. That we would have, uh, we gain greater clarity about how we can engage with some of these topics. That we will increase in our conviction about what God's word says and that we'll have incredible confidence in the goodness of God and the bright future that Jesus has prepared for all of those who place their faith in him. When we talk about the issues that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, we've got to remember that we're not just talking about theories and concepts that are divorced from the very real experiences and feelings of real people. We're talking about deeply personal things. And therefore, we must handle these sorts of topics with care and compassion. These things matter deeply to people, and so we're not going to chuck them around as if they don't, uh, if they aren't important. When we're talking about sexuality in particular, we're approaching an area of people's lives where there most likely has been, and most likely still is, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of loneliness, a lot of weariness, and a lot of despair. We want to approach these topics in the same way that we see Jesus approaching those who are hurting and feeling isolated. So wherever you're at with uh, God, wherever you're at with your own personal journey of sexuality, whatever you believe about God, I hope that you will hear my heart this morning, that that's how we want to address this. We don't, we're not, we don't want to address these just as topics and we'll just get some info, but we want to think about these things and talk about these things as very deeply personal um, uh, parts of people's lives. So let's open, let's, let's open up um, this time with prayer and we'll commit this time to the Lord. <clears throat> Father, you are the God of all grace and mercy and comfort and kindness. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would instruct us this morning by your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that your words would inhabit and be more important than mine. Lord, where I at all misspeak this morning, would that be quickly erased and forgotten? Holy Spirit, would you lead us uh, in our own hearts, Lord? Would you teach us in our own hearts? Would you teach us in our lives? Would you, <clears throat> any change, Lord, that needs to be made, Holy Spirit, would that be of you and not of anything that I say, Lord, but all of you, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work. We commit this time to you, Father. I ask, Lord, that you would bless it. Amen. <clears throat> I want to begin this morning at the beginning of our Bibles um, with somewhat of an explanation of why we're calling this series Imago Dei. Uh, I could have called it Tough Topics or something like that, and that would have been absolutely fine. Uh, but at the core of all of these tough topics that we're looking at, 
uh, we're, that we're going to address in the coming weeks. So today we're looking at homosexuality, next week is transgenderism, then abortion and then euthanasia. At the core of each of those subjects is the erosion or the rejection, rejection or the denial of what the Bible teaches about the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei is the Latin phrase for image of God, and it refers to Genesis 1.27, when God created mankind, and it says that he created mankind in the image of God. And that is no small thing. That is massive, that God created us in his image. It is crucial for understanding who we are, what our purpose is, and what kind of standing we have in this universe. The Bible has an awful lot to say about what makes us human, and the beginning point is here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. When the Bible teaches us that, God was, that man was, mankind was created in God's image, it means that we are reflections of who God is, created to reflect God's glory back to him and to the world around us. And because no other creative thing, not the moon or the stars or the animals or the mountains, nothing else was created in God's image. Only mankind is said to be made in God's image. This gives mankind immense dignity and worth and value over and above the rest of creation. There is a treasuredness about mankind that makes us unique in God's eyes. Now, being God's image bearers, bearing the image of God, that, that means more than just physically that we represent God, but it also doesn't mean less than that. Our bodies are a critical factor in understanding what makes us us. And if you look at the detailed account of God creating man in Genesis 2, it says in verse 7 that the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Pay attention to, that, to those words that God formed the man out of the dust. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. It wasn't that God created Adam as some kind of intangible entity and then made a body for him to inhabit. No, Adam's body is Adam. And while his body is not all he is, it is very much crucial to his identity. You can't have Adam without his body. As humans, we are not souls shoved into bodies. We are embodied souls. Our bodies are just as much a part of us as anything else. And contrary to popular belief, Christianity has a very high view of our bodies, more than just about any other worldview. The Bible gives us immense dignity and value, gives our bodies immense dignity and value, and they cannot be discarded. Our bodies cannot be ignored as if they have nothing to say. Our bodies are, are, teach us something about morality. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are not mass produced or copied and pasted. We are not a, a random assembly of parts. Our bodies were individually and personally handmade by God, who knitted us together exactly as we, as we are, with a distinct purpose in mind. And just about every other religion and even secular culture denigrates the body, treating our bodies as something separate from our identity, 
And therefore, because it's separate, uh, it can be disposed of. It, it is malleable to our heart's content. But Christianity stands alone in giving incredible dignity to our bodies. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. This is the foundation that we're approaching these topics from, that God created our bodies with a purpose. We're not just arguing for biblical principles on sexuality as opposed to secular principles, but we believe that what the Bible has to say to us about these matters is not just a difference of opinion. We believe that what the Bible has to say is far better than what the secular ethic is. The Bible has a wonderful story to tell us about our bodies. The Bible has a wonderful story to tell us about God redeeming our bodies. So the issue that we're tackling today, in particular, is the acceptance of homosexual or same-sex relationships as a common and normal alternative to heterosexual relationships. It seems a bit strange, somewhat even late, to be talking about these issues even. Uh, Speaking culturally, I don't hold a huge amount of hope that the tide is going to be turned back on this one. Really, since the plebiscite on same-sex marriage in 2017, the issue in our culture seems to have been put to bed and we've all kind of moved on and it's been accepted by the general public. And because it's now considered mainly normal and that we should all just move on, the questions that the, the world seems to be asking now are, what's the big deal? Why does this still bother you? These are two consenting adults. What they seek is long-term committed faithfulness to each other. Why can't you allow this? Doesn't God want them to be happy? Isn't love, love? And all those questions on the surface seem very reasonable. And when they're framed in this way, we we can feel quite awful to stand opposed to them. We can sometimes find ourselves without a leg to stand on and not knowing what to say. And so what I want to do this morning is humbly and confidently put forward why same-sex relationships are incompatible with the biblical sexual ethic. The Bible is really clear that any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is sin and needs to be repented from. Homosexuality and by that I mean homosexual lusts and acts, are listed amongst many other sins that, like all sin, is an abomination to God. And I want to distinguish between uh, homosexual feelings and temptations on the one side and homosexual lusts and acts on the other. To be attracted to someone of the same sex and experience the the temptation to act on that, uh, that attraction is not in itself a sin. Being tempted is not a sin. Jesus himself experienced temptation, but giving way to those desires and acting upon them, whether that's in our thoughts, entertaining those thoughts, or whether that's actually in our minds and acting on them with our bodies, the Bible calls that sin. And that's the case for all sin, really. Temptation, which must be resisted, 
it is not in and of itself sinful. So you can have same-sex attraction, and you can be tempted in that way and still be a Christian. We're not saying that those things are opposite. And the goal, for a homose- the goal of the gospel for a homosexual is not heterosexuality, but godliness. God is not calling gay people to become straight, but rather sinners to become saints by faith in Jesus Christ. There is grace and forgiveness available to all people through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And for wretched sinners like you and I, we are invited to the loving embrace of Jesus Christ, to repent, to draw near to him, to walk with him towards the incredibly bright future that he has lovingly prepared for us. To understand how living a homosexual lifestyle is in defiance of the Imago Dei, we need to understand a little bit about identity. For a person who comes out as gay, this moment is largely considered today as an incredible milestone in discovering their true identity. They have searched deep within, they have discovered this about themselves, and so they are encouraged to embrace and celebrate these feelings as something central to who they are. And I can only imagine for somebody who does go through that process, that that would be a liberating thing to actually uh, speak honestly about something that is inside of you. But the message of the world is this, you are your desires. Whatever your sexual desire is, whoever you want to go to bed with, that is the most important thing about you. And this discovery of of the real you, uh, our society says, should be celebrated and affirmed. But it wasn't always like this. It wasn't always the case that we located our identity in our sexuality. So, So how do we get there? How do we get to this point in history where someone's sexuality has become so crucial to their identity that they identify as their sexuality, saying that is the most important thing about them? Well, to understand this, we need to go back in history a little bit to the 17th century French philosopher René Descartes, who uh, he wanted to, um, uh, in a bit of a search for what makes us human, he wanted to, to strip back the, the many layers of, of what makes us us and, and really isolate himself. He famously went into a, an oven and closed the door for several days until he kind of could boil down to the very thing that makes us us. And he famously came out of that oven saying, I think... Therefore, I am. Because I think, because I process, because my mind can think of these things, that's what makes us human. He located the center of our identity in the fact that we can process thoughts and even think of such things. And and René Descartes in the history of philosophy is offering, that that moment is considered like the, the watershed moment in modern philosophy. That's when it all kind of changed from there. A century later, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant built on Descartes' ideas and he observed that our minds are the instruments that process the constant flood of of data, of of chaos that we get through our eyes and our ears. We're always looking at things and hearing things and smelling things and touching things. And our minds are, are what organizes it all into a coherent and ordered concept of reality. And because our mind filters and organizes all these things into something that we can actually understand, our mind is therefore the ultimate authority on all things, says Immanuel Kant. 
It perceives all things. It decides all things. And because of that, our minds can be said to be, because they make sense of everything, our minds can be said to be the creator of all things. This is Immanuel Kant's philosophy. In the words of Nancy R. Piercy, Kant absolutized the mind, making our minds the supreme authority on all morality. What's true in my mind is more true than what is in the world. In Kant's view, the mind is the authority on morality, and any source of morality outside of our minds, outside of our thoughts, outside of our desires, even in our own bodies, is oppressive. And Kant's views became the seeds of postmodern thought that now takes autonomy, that has literally been a law unto ourselves, it now takes that for granted. So much so that we hear sayings like, my truth, and we don't even think about it. That sounds absolutely normal. And in this grid, when our thoughts and feelings are the ultimate authority on all things, we are free to, in, uh, to impose our own interpretations on our bodies. And our bodies are nothing more than raw material that we can, uh, with no real identity and purpose. It's just we are souls, that's who we are. We, there's, someone in, there's someone deep inside of us, and our bodies are just vehicles for our souls to basically control. And the reason why we need to look at all of this is because we need to understand that this whole idea of being morally autonomous, that we get to decide what is right for us and wrong for us in our thoughts and feelings, is actually a very recent innovation. It wasn't always like this. Humans haven't always thought about these things in this way. Nor does it make us any, unique, any much more unique. If we say something along the lines of, well, this is my truth and I just need to live it out, we're not thinking as independently as we think we might be. We are operating and thinking according to a secular postmodern grid that has taught us to think that way. And then all we need to do is mix that postmodern thought together with a culture that is obsessed with romantic love and being married, and what we end up with is a system that declares that your internal sexual feelings are the most important thing about you, and they need to be celebrated, they need to be affirmed, they need to be articulated, they need to be expressed, even if what you desire in a sexual partner is different to what our naturally complementary bodies require, give us. The mantra is this, if you desire it, it must be a good thing, and you're entitled to it, regardless of any obstacles. That's not, uh, that's not a universal truth for all of mankind, for all of history. It's a recent innovation. It's where we are now. And this is where a homosexual lifestyle denies the imago Dei. It denies that our identity comes from God who made us. He made our souls. He made our bodies. And that wasn't an accident. And instead, it locates our identity, who we are, in our sexual desires. Our desires become the absolute authority on our identity and morality. It declares, you are your desires, and anyone who suggests otherwise is morally reprehensible. And this is what I think makes the terrain really difficult to navigate this. You see, if you disagree with someone on same-sex marriage... As much as you think that what you are doing is just offering your opinion, it won't be received that way. It's tantamount to denying someone's humanity. If you say, I don't, I don't agree with you, I've got a difference of opinion, as much as you might believe that you're just offering a difference of opinion, 
it won't be interpreted that way for the most part. It will be interpreted as you're saying I'm not a human anymore because you're saying that who I am is not actually valid. And so I want to point us to the good news of Jesus and say that we are actually not our desires. We are far more than them. We are not our temptations. We are far more than them. If we seek to find ourselves within ourselves, we are guaranteed to find only misery, regardless of whether those temptations are heterosexual or homosexual by nature. That is a universal truth for all of us. A Christian is not a heterosexual person who God pats on the back for being good. A Christian is a sinner who has stopped letting their hearts declare who they are and they have instead let the cross of Christ declare who they are. We are forgiven. We are born again. We are made into children of the King. If you're here and you experience same-sex attraction, then while that is very much an important part of your life, I want you to hear me on this, that you are more than that. That is not the most important thing about you. You are more than your feelings and your desires. To suggest that you can get your identity from, from your feelings is like suggesting to a thirsty person that they go to a muddy puddle to quench their thirst when there are fountains of fresh, flowing, living water, cool water at hand. If someone experiences same-sex attraction and they are told that that is the most important thing about them, and they should embrace this as their identity, then because their desires don't match the complementary realities of their bodies, an incredible dissonance will be created in that person, and their minds and their bodies will be cleft in two. The Bible actually teaches us that our hearts deceive us. They are sick. They are the source of all evil thoughts and immoralities, says Jesus. Given our hearts and desires and inner thoughts, that kind of moral authority over our lives is like handing our greatest treasure over to the most unworthy, untrustworthy and deceitful person that we know. We need so much more than that to give us that identity which we're all seeking after. We need to get our identity from the God who created us carefully, fearfully, wonderfully and with an incredible purpose and incredible future in mind. God created us as a body, as a soul, as a spirit. And so any rejection of God's design for our bodies is ultimately a rejection of God. And the Bible does teach us that homosexual lusts and acts are a rejection of God. It is sin. Leviticus 18 and 20 calls homosexual acts an abomination. Romans 1 calls them a dishonorable passion that is part and parcel of God's judgment. And 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 lists homosexuality alongside several other sins, such as murder, thievery, idolatry, greed, drunkenness, revilers, swindlers, slave traders, and perjurers. Now, there's a few observations that we can make about what the Bible says about this. The first observation is this. There are only a few passages that actually explicitly mention homosexuality in the Bible. This relatively low number, though, is not nothing. There only needs to be one for us to take it seriously. But it does tell us that the Bible is not fixated on this particular sin. 
if all you know about the Bible is that it is bad news for gay people, then I encourage you to read it a bit more closely. Second thing, it calls other sins an abomination as well. The Bible does not single out homosexuality as being worse than other sins. All sin deserves God's just wrath. And because of that, this is the third point, homosexual lusts and acts, as well as every other sin, regardless of how public or private it is, must be repented of. Friends, sin is serious. It's really serious. Those who do not turn from their sin, but lean into their sin and make a practice and a habit of sin, those who make peace with their sin are clearly not living in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have clearly rejected him. And those who reject Jesus will not be found in the new heavens and the new earth. But like all those who reject Jesus, they will suffer the eternal punishment of their sin, God's just judgment. But for those who do repent... Those who who do turn to Jesus, they will be washed clean. They will be sanctified. They will be justified. The judge will come and he will remove your judgment by placing it on himself. Jesus, when we put our faith in him, Jesus takes the judgment that was coming for us and he puts that onto himself. And God would be unloving unless he said anything else to us. God is the epitome and the source of perfect and eternal love. And because that's who he is, he necessarily judges all sin. And through his son, Jesus Christ, he became the one who was judged for all of our sin. God's message to us is not, clean yourself up and then come to me. No, Jesus says, regardless of how much of a mess you've made, I'll clean you up. I'll make it so that in God's eyes, you are as if you've never sinned once in your life. And I will be with you always to slowly and sometimes very painfully make your new cleanness an actual and felt reality in your life. And I'll make that removal of sin central to who you are. That becomes the most, thing, the most important thing about us. So an important question at this stage is, if homosexuality is an unnatural rejection of God's design for us and for our bodies... How do we explain homosexuality, especially for people who don't want those feelings? Is this how God made us? The Bible explains that all of our brokenness, whether sexual or not, uh, is, is a result of being under the curse of sin. When sin came into the world, it got everywhere. Kind of like when you come home from a day at the beach, you just find sand everywhere. Sin gets in everywhere. It gets into our relationships. It gets into our hearts. It gets into nature. It gets into our bodies. It gets everywhere. It took something that was utterly pure and perfect, and sin distorted it. All of creation was subject to futility, says Paul in Romans 8. All illness, pain, Sickness, conflict, war, atrocity, every horrible thing can trace its origins back to being under the curse of sin. We just need to look at the news and look at what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, or Israel and Gaza, or the earthquake that struck at midnight in um, Kathmandu on Friday night. Sin gets in everywhere. 
it distorts everything. It ruins everything. And this includes the way that each of us have been broken by sin. For some people, the particular struggle is with substances and with alcohol, and that's just, that's just a, a thing that we just have to fight. It's difficult. That is difficult for us. For others, it's lust. It's, it's a personal and embarrassing thing that we hold in our hearts. For some, it's greed. That no matter how much we have, we, we feel like we always want more. For others, it's gossip that we just can't help but bring others down for the sake of elevating ourselves. For some of us, it's lying, and lying is as automatic to us as breathing. For some, it's stealing and, and, and taking things. And for some, the brokenness is felt particularly in their sexuality, whether that's in homosexual or heterosexual temptations. We have a broken interaction with things that were meant to bring us joy that have been distorted by sin. This is the profound ugliness of sin. It's widespread, it's insidious, and it's indiscriminate. What we experience in our nature, in our bodies, and in our hearts is not natural. It's not as God intended it. Sam Albury, who was a same-sex attracted pastor in the States, said it like this. He says, all of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not about how God has made me. The brokenness that we feel is a result of sin distorting us, mangling us. It's not how God made us. But we're not without hope either. Paul goes on in Romans 8 to say that God did this in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. There will come a day where all of creation, everything will be set free from the curse of sin. All illness, all atrocities, all misled desires will be gone. That particular struggle with sin that you have will be no more. It will be a distant memory, not even that. And in their place will be, will be the complete wholeness of our humanity and perfect reconciliation to God. And we still await that day. We live in this in-between period between the first and the second coming of Jesus. The two ages that overlap one another where on the one hand we experience freedom from sin and regeneration and sanctification. We experience the presence of God with us teaching us to no longer sin. And yet we aren't whisked away into glory immediately. Our world and our bodies still feel the agony and the pain of our brokenness. This means that for some of us, we will experience uh, freedom from that curse of sin on this side of eternity in, in particular ways. And some of us, in ways that we hope would just be gone straight away, we will have to wait for the other side of eternity. And, that, and this includes those who experience same-sex attraction. There are plenty of stories of Christian men and women with same-sex attraction who eventually get married to someone of the opposite sex and they are able to live that way with a profound sense of satisfaction. There are also plenty of stories of people where that is not the case for them. There is no guarantee in God's word that each person will experience the same thing. So where does that leave us? Where do we go from here? 
as I begin to finish this up, I want to speak to anyone here in particular who is experiencing, who may be experiencing same-sex attraction. And I don't assume that there aren't people here who that is a difficulty for. Whether that's an unwanted or a welcome desire for you, I want you to hear me say this. That must be really hard. That must be really hard. There must have been, and most likely still are, very difficult things that you face, very difficult days that you face. And no doubt you, feel, you have felt alone, conflicted, hurt, and full of doubt. I've got no doubt that even something like today and what I've just been speaking about might have been incredibly painful for you to listen to. And I'm really grateful that you've given me your time today. I really am. There's a few things I think I'd love for you to hear me on. Firstly, your feelings don't define you. Your search for identity and meaning doesn't have to end with your desires. There is one who knows more about you than you could ever imagine, and he loves you more than you could ever hope. And your search for identity will be fruitless until you come to him. And he will be waiting for you with outstretched arms, with a massive smile on his face and great plans for a huge party to celebrate at your home. Secondly, those feelings don't disqualify you. You might think that because of this, that you are outside of the bounds of God's love. Because of these feelings that you have, there's no way that God could ever love you. Maybe you've even been told that. Friends, that's not true. You might think you've gone too far and that God would not ever want anything to do with you. You might feel like an old doll at an op shop that just gets passed over and pushed to the side. Friends, if that's you, Jesus does not pass over you. He sees you. He loves you. He wants you. And he doesn't need you to iron your shirt or fix up your hair or try, sort, try and sort your life out a, a little bit more before you come to him. None of that matters to him. He just wants you. And finally, you need to hear this. Because all, I believe all of those things, for me to affirm and, uh, any sinful feeling that you have or endorse any sinful action would not be loving. If the Bible is true that homosexual acts and lusts are a sin... And if sin is more serious than anything else and has eternally destructive ramifications for it, then it would be unloving for me to pretend that it's okay. Sin is more serious than we've ever given it credit. God's love is far greater than we could ever imagine. You are absolutely welcome here. We love you. We want the best for you. And we're willing to walk the long road ahead with you to discover the better plan that God has for you. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what that looks like for you and, and this church or for you and, and a Christian community around you. But can I encourage you, if, you're, if, if you have same-sex attraction and you are struggling with that or whatever that, just whatever that is, can I encourage you to, to open up to someone, a, a trusted friend who can, you can talk to about that? Shed light on that. Don't walk that alone. When we come to follow Jesus, we are called 
to deny ourselves. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus didn't give that instruction just to one particular group of people. That's all of us. We all must deny ourselves. We all must deny something of ourselves, regardless of our sexuality. And the longer that you walk with Jesus, the more you discover that what you need to deny is always going to be the most personal, the closest, and the most treasured things about yourself. But in the call to deny yourself, there is immediately a promise. Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You will gain life. The invitation of Jesus is to make a trade. Your life for his. And that is scary. But no one who has ever made that trade has ever been robbed of anything. They have come away with unparalleled and incomparable treasure that is worth more than anything they had to give up. They have eternal life. Life cannot be found in your sexuality. The world will tell you again and again that it can, but it simply cannot. There is more to you than that. There is more for you than that. You are far more important to God than that. Don't settle for such a shallow version of yourself. Let me now talk to those of us who are Christians and who don't struggle with same-sex attraction. How do we engage with others about this? How do we engage with the world around us about this? Even if you do struggle with same-sex attraction, this is still important. Firstly, engage with compassion. We need to pay careful attention to how Jesus responded to those who struggled with the painful realities of brokenness in their lives. We must look at how Jesus met eye-to-eye with those whose sin made them culturally and socially and morally marginalized, and we need to follow his example. Jesus always met such people with great compassion as well as calling them to turn from their sin, to go away and sin no more. And God, do you follow his example? He got to the very vulnerable parts of people's lives, the parts where shame and guilt, where there was shame and guilt, and he didn't crush them into the dirt, but he shined the bright light of, of God's love upon them. As a church, are we ready, are we prepared to welcome in the sinner? Gosh, I hope so. Because if we're not, I would have to leave. We would all have to leave. Are we willing to walk that journey with someone? Are we willing to become the close friends that a single person needs for close companionship? Are we willing to do this with people here in this church? Are we willing to do that ourselves personally and not just leave that to someone else? Are we willing to pay the price and bear the cost of the time and the patience and the hard work and the long-suffering and the kindness and the setbacks and the discouragements and the hospitality and the feelings of failure and the need to forgive and the feeling of being uncomfortable and above all the very high cost of love and grace in order to see sinners, a broken sinners just like us, be slowly and absolutely be restored to be more and more like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. 
I really hope we are prepared to do that because that's simply what discipleship is, regardless of someone's sexuality. That's what we are called to do as the body of Christ with one another. This thought's been occurring to me lately. Being part of the body of Christ is a high-risk game because we are, we are broken, busted-up sinners and we are called to come into such close proximity with one another that we will hurt one another, that we will stretch one another's patience. But because Jesus has been infinitely patient with us, we have every reason to be gracious to one another like that. The body of Christ is, has this incredible, incredible potential, incredible op- opportunity to display to the world around us a community that loves one another, is committed to one another. There is no one here who will be required to show more love and forgiveness and grace and kindness than what Jesus has already showed them. What we have in our church is the possibility of a community so built on love that it treats both married and single celibate people, heterosexual and same-sex attracted people with equal, equal dignity and worth and love. We have an incredible opportunity to love those who feel unlovable. And we need to pray a lot. A lot. Pray for one another. Be in life groups and share with that with one another and say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with or I'm walking alongside this with my, with my sibling or my co-worker and I don't know what to say. Pray. Pray for one another. Secondly, engage with conviction. The reality is that this is, this is not going to be easy for many people. And one of the things that Jesus did promise was that if you continue following him, you will walk into the same cobwebs of persecution that he did. Don't compromise on what God's word teaches, regardless of how counterculture it is. It isn't loving to pretend that someone is fine with God when they're not. As well as that, don't compromise on the loving and gracious welcome of Jesus to all sinners. The reality is that there is no such thing as a single argument or a one-shot sentence that will allow you to maintain a biblical standpoint, but that also honours God and expresses all of the compassion and love that you have for that person. There's no such thing as a single sentence that we can keep up our sleeve, a single argument that will end all arguments and leave the other person feeling that we're the most lovely people on earth. I wish there was a sentence like that. There, There isn't. What we can do is to seek, is seek to maintain constant, loving, caring, compassionate, available, and generous, and long-lasting relationships where we seek to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeking to be like Jesus before them. There will be a cost to this. This might cost a friendship. I hope it doesn't. This might cost social standing. It probably already does. This might cost a career. And some of you have experienced that close close at hand. Don't compromise on what God's word teaches. And can I encourage you to, if you you want to know more about this, there are so many really great resources out there to help. We've got a bunch of them at the table at the back there. Um, I just picked them up up online this week and uh, we've just priced them um, a little bit cheaper than I got, and so that just a bit more available to you. Uh, 
by all means, grab one of those. If you, if you don't have, didn't bring cash, if you brought cash, chuck it in that box. If you didn't bring cash, just um, put it into the church bank details later on. Honesty system, I trust you guys. And if you forget, you forget. It's okay, it's not the end of the world. But there are some excellent, excellent, amazing resources available, uh, to, available for us. Uh, there's one book at the back there, although it might have already been taken, um, by a guy named Sam Aubrey. I already mentioned him this morning. He wrote a really small book called Is God Anti-Gay? One of the most helpful books I've ever read on this topic. Um, you could sit down and read it in an afternoon if you're able to. Really, really helpful. And can I recommend that book? Plus, there's several others. There's uh, um, plenty of them are personal uh, memoirs of uh, people who... who experience same-sex attraction and um, have written about it and they've, they've become Christians and then talked about how God's transformed their lives in various ways. And so there's a bunch of books like that at the back there. So engage with compassion, engage with conviction. Finally, engage with confidence. The Bible gives us a bright future and an incredible hope. All of the desires that we have will one day be ultimately and supremely satisfied in Jesus Christ. Though this world is hard and the experiences that we have are difficult, because of God's grace, wretched sinners like you and I can look forward to a day when all things that are hard and difficult and painful and atrocious and that hurt will be gone and they will make total sense and they will be totally worth it at the first glance of seeing Jesus' face. The Bible offers us a better story to live by. It is a story of our sins forgiven and our records wiped clean. For those who trust in Jesus, the most important and by far the most fantastic thing about us is that our sin no longer counts against us anymore because Jesus Christ took our punishment for them on the cross. And because of what Jesus did, we can come to God and we can know God, we can love God, we can have an actual relationship with God, we can be made right with God, we can be reconciled to God. And when God looks at us on that day of judgment, we having been made righteous by God, we will know that we have peace with Him. There's no more animosity between us and God. Peace with God, that is the most important thing about us. We have peace with the Creator of the universe. And each one of us is invited to live in the reality of that story, to know the love of God for us in real ways, to experience his amazing grace, and to walk forward towards that bright future which he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.